Well, the images that we, we just watched, they're so powerful, aren't they? That we can see relationship, we can see so many different things depicted, but, but really what we've been watching, Hosea, is really uh, a relationship between a, a man named Hosea and, and a woman named Gomer. And we've been watching these videos that are a modern-day depiction of literally what this book, Hosea, has been all about. We've been going through it together. And whether you've been journeying th- with us or not, I'll be honest, personally, it's been very, very impacting with the love of God and that he has for each and every single one of us. If you want to turn with me to Hosea 14, that's where we're going to be today. Whether you want to turn in your Bible or in a smartphone or in a, bi- a Bible that's in front of you, we'd love to give you that Bible to you as a gift if you don't own one. But we learn in chapter 14 really the, the, the summation of all that we've been learning in Hosea, that you have Gomer, who was a prostitute on a small town in Middle East 3,000 years ago. And she meets a man named Hosea, really a, 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 a preacher of his day, and he finds his wife in the strangest of places. And he woos her, he romances her, he marries her. And how does she reward him? Well, she rewards him with cheating on him and infidelity and then children that are not of his own. And and we just saw in that video how she brings someone else's child into the relationship. And how does he respond? He pursues her. That even when he pursues her, she turns her back on him and she reaches rock bottom as we learned a few weeks ago in Hosea chapter 3. And she becomes a sex slave. And what does Hosea do? He buys her back with all of the money that he has. It's a beautiful moment of what repentance looks like. That repentance is coming home. That's how we defined it last week. And they walk together home. And it's another image that reminds us of the love of God. We've been also looking at the same story over the last few weeks called the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. And the prodigal son is the son who runs away basically with his inheritance. He spends it all, and then he walks home with his tail between his legs, and his father welcomes him home. And these are powerful images that grip our heart around what just a little bit of what God's love is like for us. And we've been looking at that, right? We've been looking at the pursuing love of God. We've been looking at the tender love of God. We've been looking at the teaching love of God. Last week we looked at the forgiving love again of God. And then today we look at the relentless love of God. We learn about the relentless love of God that he receives us even with our baggage. How many suitcases do you have with you today? That's a question that I want you to think about over the next few moments. Because Gomer, she had quite a number of bags with her. She was the bag lady. She was homeless. She smelled. She was dirty. She certainly had not lived the kind of life that she was proud of. But then on top of it, she comes home carrying another man's child. And how does Hosea respond? Arms wide open. Arms wide open. And as we get to Hosea 14, we find arms wide open for Israel and for us as well. In verse 1, it says, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. They had plenty of baggage that their sins had been astronomical. They had kissed the golden statues. They had murdered. They had literally sacrificed their own children on the altars of Baal. 
other horrible, horrible things. And they had suffered the consequences of their sin too. The sin had taken them farther than they ever wanted to go. It had kept them longer than they ever wanted to stay. And it had cost them more than they ever wanted to pay. And yet, the relentless love of God, arms wide open, baggage and all, return. So Hosea gives them the proper words and us the proper words. In verse 2 and following, he says, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mourn, or we will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. See, these are the right words for Israel, for all people to say to God. Israel was under threat of invasion on a consistent basis. It still is to this day. And Assyria was their refuge, at least they thought. And Hosea says, you know what? That source of strength is mistaken. And what you need to be aware of and what you need to say, Israel, to God, is that Assyria will not save us. There needs to be a heart-level recognition for you. There's only one way to salvation. There's only one way to protection. And that is through Yahweh, God. And he alone can to bring about these things. And, and their attitude and their actions all need to align finally. And then Hosea says, For in God the orphan finds mercy. In all of Scripture, if you look at this book and all its totality, the way that God is depicted in an overarching way is a loving heavenly Father. Sure, there's other characteristics, but by and large, this is what we see. And here, we see it again, that he is a loving heavenly Father. And how does a loving heavenly Father, friends, react when a rebellious child comes home? Come on home. Come home. I love you so much. I love what Spurgeon, the great uh, preacher in the 1800s, said about this 14th chapter of Hosea. He said, throughout the book of Hosea, there has been thunder. Sometimes a low rumbling of a storm immediately overhead. And now the tempest has gathered all of its force. You expect the bolts of heaven to destroy, but instead there is a silver of shower of mercy. So what baggage are you carrying today? Let me ask you. You got a whole truckload? If you do, friend, you're, you're not alone. You're in company here today because we all carry invisible bags along uh, with us. And the good news is that Gomer brings her bags to Jose and he says, welcome home. And God, in, in his infinite love and pursuit of us, we bring our bags to him and he says, welcome home. In Jeremiah, he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. And if you've been exploring Jesus Christ, if, if you have questions about Jesus Christ, this is a great place to explore those. This is a safe place to explore those. I would love to have a conversation with you. Our team would love to have a conversation with you. Our elders, a number of all of our volunteers, and later on you have an opportunity to come down here to the front and have it, or maybe later on we'd love to talk to you. I'd love to take you out to for coffee or whatever and discuss that. And maybe this is your first time and you, and you just kind of don't know where you stand with all this. A great opportunity to explore the fact that your heavenly Father loves you and that he, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, not only can we have a right relationship with the Creator now, but then it'll extend into eternity. But not only is this the relentless love of God and the fact that it receives our baggage, but we see that the relentless love of God, it also helps us grow. You see, it receives our baggage, but then it relieves our baggage. 
Look at it with me in, in verse 4. He says, I will heal. Now just stop right there. This is a physician, and he's placing healing balm upon the hurts and hang-ups and baggage of their life. And as the great physician, he is healing them from the inside out. Do you have any sport fans here to this morning? In 1929, there was a Rose Bowl in the University of California. And um, the University of California and Georgia Tech played in it. And in the middle of the game, the center for the University of California, Roy Riggles, he was so excited because there was a fumble and he captured the fumble. And what happened next is he got confused and he ends up running the wrong way. Watch this video real quick to get a firsthand look. The most famous play by a center in Rose Bowl history led to defeat for his team. The 1929 game, Cal's Roy Regals recovered a fumble and ran 65 yards the wrong way before a teammate wrestled him to the ground at the one. A block punt led to a safety, an 8-7 Georgia Tech win, and a dubious place in history for Roy Regals. So at halftime of that game, Roy goes to the very corner of the locker room all by himself and he puts a towel over his head and he just begins to cry. And the whole rest of the team is kind of separated from him. And, this, and the coach with three minutes to go before the end of halftime says, the same team that took the field in the first half, they're going to take the field in the second half. But Roy doesn't get up. He keeps crying. He keeps sulking. So there's just a few seconds left to go. And the coach once again says, the same team that played in the first half will play again in the second half. And Roy didn't move, so the coach goes up to him, and he says, Roy, did you hear me? And Roy says, I can't go back out there. I, I've, I've, I've embarrassed you. I've embarrassed University of Cal. I, I can't go out there in front of those fans. I, I've embarrassed myself. And the coach puts his hands on the man's shoulders, and he says this, the second half is yet to be played. He says this. He says, you know what? The first half is over, my friend, and the second half is still yet to be played. And Roy believed him. Roy goes out and plays one of the greatest second halves any football player has ever played. He played with something fierce within him. And I don't know if you can relate to this man, but I surely can. You know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I find myself picking up fumbles and running them in the wrong direction. I find myself embarrassed by the things I do and the things that I say, and I just want to quit. I just want to give up. I just want to throw in the towel. And what I think God wants you to hear is the second half is yet to be played. I, I think that what God is trying to communicate to us through his pursuing love, his relentless love, that he wants us to re be relieved of our baggage, that he wants us to break through in our life. And what he wants to see in us is that we're not done in, we're just not done. That because God is still working, you're not done. And you're not done because God is still working in your life. And when you look at Gomer, do you think that Gomer just went home with Hosea and that was the end of the story? I picture it like this, that she goes home and Hosea draws her a bath. And he takes her dirty old clothes and he throws them away. And on the chair or the floor, there is placed new clothes. 
and she cleans herself off. She washes her hair. She smells better. She starts a new journey. And as the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and the, and the months turn into years, I believe that Gomer's life began to shed baggage. And as she began to shed baggage, the redeeming love Hosea took course because she had a lifetime of wandering within her. I remember I was traveling one time from uh, Dallas, Texas to Salt Lake City. And my departure from Dallas, Texas was late, and I had a connecting flight from Salt Lake, and it was a really tight window. We were late by a number of minutes, and I was afraid I wasn't going to make it. So I had the prospect of running through the airport of Salt Lake City, which is a big airport if you've never been there. And I had to run through three terminals to get to my connecting flight in 10 minutes. And this was before you had a limited number of bags and you have to carry basically a small lunch sack on the plane now. This is when you could have big bags. And so I had two bags with me. I didn't check any others. And so I'm running through the airport. Have you ever run with bags before? It's, there's nothing graceful about it, is there? I thought about doing that on stage, but I thought, no, I don't want to trip and fall. And, you know, be. So I'm running through the airport. And I'm so frustrated because I'm going a quarter of the speed that I normally could go because I've got all this weight holding me down. And I make it, thankfully, and I get, in, get onto the plane and I've sweat through all of my clothes. Hey, have you ever sweat through all of your clothes and you sit down on that slimy seat? Isn't that the worst feeling? Doesn't that make you mad? I just was so mad for the rest of my flight. I think that what God wants us to know is that he wants to relieve the baggage in our life so that we don't run at quarter of the speed, but that we live at full speed. He wants us to know that he's not done, and that means that we're not done. Can you imagine the kids of Gomer one day later on to their own kids saying, you know what, Grandma wasn't always like this. That Israel had repented, but they weren't done. They had still some bales left in them, that maybe we feel like we've come back to the Father, but we're not done. We're not done. In fact, it, God is still working, and because He's still working, we're, we're not done. And, and God wants to grow you, and He wants to relieve the baggage in your life. And we see this in the few, in the few verses we read. Verse 5, it says this, I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Now, these are word pictures of what the growth looks like when you drop the bags. You've got the lily, which is a beautiful flower. You have the cedar of Lebanon, which can be smelled before seen, and it's a good smell. And then the roots go deep, and it perseveres, even on rocky terrain. And then you have the promise, which I want to camp on just for a few minutes, that, that, that we it will be like the splendor of an olive tree. You see, God offers the splendor of an olive tree. It's a picture of the growth that he wants us to have few observations about an olive tree. The first one is the olive tree is a tree that it grows on you. You see, you look at an olive tree and it's not exactly as majestic as the oak. It's not as tall as the redwood. It doesn't have that picture-perfect shape that you see in so many trees. 
However, as you spend a few moments gazing at an olive tree, you begin to appreciate the beauty that is within. And it's a beautiful picture of the growing love of God in a person's life. I mean, it would have been easy to look at Gomer's life and be like, what, what a waste. But what you don't know is the transformational work, ever-changing work, non-shiny, non-flashy movement of God in her life. And the growth that happens is the growth that our souls long for, for peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. But also an olive tree, it's a tree ever-abiding. You see, the olive tree is never naked. There's always things around it. And its roots are secure and strong. In fact, it's very hard to kill an olive tree if you've ever tried. We had an olive tree in our front yard, and it would never die. It was so strong. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, it's not always about being happy, but there's blessing. There's peace. There's usefulness. There's perseverance in the growth of God. But then an olive tree is also unique. I love this. The, the, no two olive trees are the same. With its variety and patterns, it casts a different color and shade pattern. On the ground of the meadow below it, you look down, the sun coming through, and you always see a different pattern in each and every tree. And it casts a light upon the brilliancy of a creative, wonderful unbelievable God. And it's the same in our lives. No two people are alike. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm not like you. <laughs> and that's the beauty of diversity, right? That's the beauty of one another using our wirings and our giftings to be the salt and light in a world that desperately needs it. And as the olive tree the olive tree develops, you see the different seasons, and there's seasons in a person's life. There's the, the period in an olive tree where it droops like a willow, and then there's a season where it blooms like a flower, and then the flowers drop to the ground and cover the ground. There's different seasons even in a person's life. If you consider uh, David in the Old Testament, you find that. I'm going to read from Psalm 103, and I, you can read along or you can look with me. But in verse 1, David says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. You see, you have the different seasons in David's life. You have the beginning where it's, there's praise and there's thanksgiving. And then you read in verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And you get the sense that David went through a period of pruning. But then as you round the corner into verse 12 and following, he finds the pursuing redemption love of God. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as removed our transgression from us. And he ends the psalm in tw verse 22. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. You see the, the different seasons in a person's life, just like the olive tree. No stories, no two stories are the same. So live your story. But then there's also this piece of the olive tree that I love in it. The olive tree knows its identity. And when the olive tree knows its identity, it can live completely with power and dignity and constructiveness to where and how and why it was created to be. Everyone in this place has come from a different place, haven't you? I mean, some of you come from a Catholic upbringing. Some of you come from a Methodist tradition. Some of you 
come from a Baptist lineage. Some of you come from an atheistic background. Some of you, you fill in the blank. But what God says is be who you are. My mentor, Howard Hendricks, always used to say, Ray, if you're like them, we don't need you. Be you, Ray. If you're like them, we don't need you. Be you. Live your story out. See, when we understand our identity before our God, it even affects how we live our life, even how, how, and, and how we look at sin in our life and, and victory in our life. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, when a follower of Jesus sins, he is momentarily suffering from an identity crisis. One time I got the call as I was coming home from work, and Dell Computer called me and said, hey, your laptop is on its way. And I said, well, that's exciting, but I didn't order a laptop. And they said, you didn't? And I said, no, but describe it. And they said, well, it's over $5,000, and it's for high-end gaming. And I thought, a $5,000 laptop? I was like, does this thing have wheels? I mean, does it fly? I mean, what is going on? And they said, well, that wasn't you. And I said, no, that wasn't me. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, your identity was stolen. I don't know if you've ever, ever had your identity stolen, but it's the worst feeling in the world. You feel like you're, you've been violated. But see, when we understand our identity and, our, and who we are in Christ, it, it moves and changes everything else. There was a, a great author, his name is Bob George, and in, cla- and in his book, Classic Christianity, he describes a scene that really has to play with identity. He says this, let's imagine that a king made a decree in his land that there would be a blanket pardon extended to all prostitutes. Would that be good news to you if you were a prostitute? That's not rhetorical. You can answer just keeping you awake. Yeah, it would be good news, right? No longer would you live in hiding. You, you wouldn't have to fear the cops or anything like that. But would it change your lifestyle? Mm, maybe not. But then George, he continues to say, now let's just say there's a blanket pardon extended to all who have practiced this, but the king has also asked you in particular to become his bride. What happens when a prostitute marries a king? She becomes a, yeah, a queen. Now, does that change her lifestyle moving forward? Yes. When we understand our identity, when we understand that we are the bride of Christ, we understand a new identity. And when we understand a new identity, we understand we are a new creation. And when we understand that, that we are underneath Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, that his power resurrected himself from the dead. And that means that he can resurrect your baggage, friends. That means that he can relieve those things from your life if you continue to live in him. But then we round the corner in verse 9, and it really gives us our marching orders. I love it. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. He says, The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. If you're going to walk in freedom, if you're going to understand the relentless love of God, if you're going to see your baggage be relieved from your life, then you must walk in his ways. And if you're going to walk in someone else's ways that aren't your own, what does it require? It requires humility, doesn't it? It requires a willingness to say, you know what, I'm not done because God's not done. It means that you must walk with the humility to say, you know what, I haven't arrived. I am not done with this thing. We have a saying right here that says, if I'm not dead, I'm not done. 
And if you're not dead, and you, none of you are, thank the Lord, you're not done. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm not done. When you look at the life of Jesus, I'll give you a quick, quick quiz. When you look at the life of Jesus, who were the people that he went after the most? You know who he did? The people who thought they had arrived. It wasn't the sinners. It wasn't the outcasts. It wasn't the people that were living this way and that way. It was the religious leaders, the pastors, the, the church people. He went after the most to say, you know what? You think you're arrived, but you know what? I'm not done with you either. You still have journey left to go. And I pray that I would walk with humility to say, you know what? I'm not done because God's not done. That the refiner has work to do in my life. You know, the refiner would practice his trade in ancient times, and he'd go through a series of events. The refiner would begin with the breaking, as they would call it, where he would take a piece of ore and cut it into a smaller piece, and there he would seek to slowly but surely, through a process, get rid of the excess and get to the heart of the matter, the expensive metal. And then he'd go to the second step, and it would be, he would call it the crucible, and the crucible is basically a fireproof melting pot that he'd put the ore in and he'd heat it to an extreme heat. And it would slowly but surely, it would begin to refine that ore. And slowly but surely, the excess would, would, would burn to the, on one side and you would have the silver on the other and purification would begin to happen. Just like the refiner does in our life when we couple it with humility, it begins to purify us. Then the third element would be that you would have the dross. And the dross was really, it represents the bales in our life. It represents the baggage in our life. It represents our hurts and hang-ups. And, and what would happen is through through the refiner's fire, the dross would rise to the top and then he'd skim it. And it'd rise to the top and he would skim it. And then the fourth one would be the heat. He would raise the heat and more would rise to the surface and he would skim it. And he would do this seven times, um, upgrading the heat every time to where the impurities would almost be gone. And then the fifth and final payoff would be that he would see the reflection. He would see the reflection of himself in the material. You see, God doesn't want to just save you from your sins. He doesn't want to just give you a new life and just leave you. He says, no, I'm not done with you. He says, I'm not done with you until when others look at you, they see me. They see me. You know, my prayer would be that they wouldn't see Ray as a pastor or Ray as a father or Ray with a beautiful wife or Ray with this or that. I pray when people would look at me over the years, they would look at Ray Green and they say, there's Jesus. And I'm a long way from it, but I'm not done because God's not done. There's still the second half to play. And a great picture of this is a man whose life was transformed he founded Alcoholics Anonymous. His name is Bill Wilson. And he says this, How privileged we are to understand so well the divine paradox that strength rises from weakness, that humiliation goes before resurrection, that pain is not only the price, but the very touchstone of spiritual rebirth. And he went on to write the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've been to one of these meetings to support a friend. We have our own Celebrate Recovery ministry here that I absolutely love and that people are welcomed and they go through these same steps. 
But I felt like that we could retrofit these for all of us because we're all not done, right? That God's not done, so we're not done. And what if we were to put these 12 steps into play every single day of our life, that we'd have the humility to come to the table before our refiner to say, God, I'm not done. How would you like to change me? How would you like to grow me? How can I, how can I enjoy more and more of the splendor that you offer? So I just wanted to offer these to you this morning. Number one, my prayer would be in humility, we would admit that we're powerless over sin, that our lives had become unmanageable. Number two, that we would come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us. Number three, that we'd make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand His great love. Number four, we'd make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Number five, we'd admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, being the exact nature of our wrongs. Number six, we would entirely be ready to have God remove all these defects of our character. Number seven, we'd humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Number eight, we'd make a list of the persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends to them. Number nine, we'd make amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do what to so would injure them or others. Number 10, we continue to take a personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admit it. Number 11, we would s- seek prayer and scripture to improve relationship with God as we understand him. And number 12, I love this, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we would try to extend and carry the love of God to others in our neighborhoods and the nations. You see, God is not finished with us. He is refining you, and as he continues to refine you, when others look at you, they will see himself. He's not done because you're not done. And you're not done because he's not done. You know, our students are going to have the weekend. That's what they're calling it. And the weekend is basically they're getting together, and for three days they are going to center upon the love of God. They're going to hear about the love of God. They're going to experience him, and they will grow. Now, when Sunday is done and they sleep for 24 hours straight because they have not slept the whole weekend— Will they be done? No. They will have just maybe begun. In your life, I don't know who you are, and I don't know your story, but I want you to know that you're not done because God's not done in you. And then he has a a journey for you ahead. See, we all have a next step that we are never finished, that we are always asking the refiner, what does it look like to remove that dross or this dross? Maybe it is to receive Christ. Or maybe for you it is it's to get into, a, into one of our groups. Or maybe it's to join this family of faith. Or maybe it's to connect into community. Or maybe it is to and take your talents, your treasure, your, your time and serve him. To unleash compassion and share Christ. Maybe it's simply today is to admit that you're not done. And you felt like you have been. And today you're like, you know what? I'm going to renew the, 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 my heart that I'm not done. Because the love of the God implores us and the love of God pursues us. And as we end Hosea 14, and we close the book, my prayer for you and I is that his love, his relentless love, would relieve us of every baggage that we carry and that we will be that splendor. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I I just want to pray for my friends here today. Regardless of their journeys, I thank you for their life. Thank you for how much you love them, and you love them so much, God. 
And so, Lord, with the baggage that we all have, that you receive us with, but that you want to set us free from, I pray that you would give us that courage to do so, that you would give us that opportunity to take that next step, whatever it may look like. And I pray in this moment that you would give us the ability to take that step. In your name, amen.